Father, we confess our ignorance of all that pertains to you without your self-revelation. We would not know ourselves, we would not know you, we would not know you as creator or redeemer. We would have still been suppressing your truth and our unrighteousness all these days had you not opened our eyes and made us to see the light of the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus. What if there are any here who have not yet seen the glory of Christ? Would you show that glory to them today from your word? Would you say that we do not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth? So would you feed your sheep this morning on knowledge and understanding? Make us hunger, even now, for the bread of life. Will you satisfy us? For Jesus' sake, amen. I wonder if there are things you just can't stand to talk about. Or maybe there are people you can't stand to be around because they talk about those things that you can't stand to talk about. Now, I know we're Christians here, and we're not supposed to have people that we can't stand to be around. But I bet you have that person in your mind right now. For many of us, there's at least one person in our lives who we can't stand to argue with because they're all, not because they're always wrong, nor even because they always disagree with us, but because they frustrate our own logic and assumptions. Or worse, maybe their arguments threaten our status or our view of ourselves. We can't stand them, and we can't take what they're saying sitting down, and yet we can't always seem to win the argument with them either. So the temptation is to twist their words or logic or to put words in their mouth so we can get the upper hand and leave our perceived virtue and consistency safely intact. Of course, it's one thing to do this with disagreements about financial decisions or sports teams or even political policy positions. It's another to do it when eternity is at stake. And yet, that's just what we see happening in Acts 6, 8 through 15. If you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, Acts 6, verses 8 through 15, there are some religious people who cannot stand to hear Stephen talking. We'll read through the passage once all the way through, then we'll walk through it again a little bit more slowly to make sure we understand what's going on, and then we'll draw some applications at the end. Acts 6, 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, and of those from Calicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit 
with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Well, remember from verses 1 through 7 that Stephen had just been appointed as one of the first deacons, and he is full of grace and power. Verse 5, Luke had called Stephen full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and here he's full of grace and power. So parents, if you guys are still having kids and you have a boy, name him after Stephen. That'd be a good choice. It's a good namesake. Grace here is God's favor for being especially effective in ministry. Power here is the word dunamis. But a word to the wise, do not define this word with our word dynamite. They are related, but dynamite is destructive. People who are learning Greek at first or people who would like to be known as people who are learning Greek often make this mistake. Dunamis, dynamite, power, wow! Well, Dynamite is destructive. This power is constructive and reconstructive. Stephen is not using this power to blow people up. He's using it to put people back together by the Spirit's power, which glorifies Jesus. He's doing the same kinds of wonders and signs among God's people as the apostles did, healings and exorcisms. And that phrase, wonders and signs, is used in the Old Testament almost exclusively of the plagues in Egypt and the Exodus. So the phrase here does double duty. It gives the apostolic days of the early church the same significance as the days of the Exodus. And it associates Stephen not only with the apostles, but with Moses, who did signs and wonders. Now, the apostles, remember, laid hands on Stephen, but doing signs and wonders links him not only to them, but again, also to Moses. So Stephen is a direct apostolic delegate. That's why he can do these signs and wonders in the first place. But apparently, not everybody likes signs and wonders that remind you of Moses and the plagues of Israel's exodus from Egypt. An axis of evil arises to take their stand against Stephen. Some from the synagogue called the freedmen, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Colicia and Asia had begun arguing against Stephen. These freedmen were Jews who were former slaves, normally to Roman citizens, who were then given their freedom and oftentimes given the status of Roman citizenship that their former owners also enjoyed. So their citizenship would have given these men significant social and cultural standing in Jerusalem. What's more, their 
Jews from all over the Mediterranean world, even Alexandria on the northern Egyptian coast, a great center of ancient learning that may have had a population of as many as a half a million, which is a megacity back then. Kalikia and Asia were regions in modern Turkey that were home to big cities like Ephesus and Tarsus. So you begin to kind of wonder, why the mention of all these cities, countries, regions? Well, they're debating Stephen, and they're all losing. No matter where these guys were educated or trained, they could not hang with Stephen. Stephen bests the best of the best from everywhere. There's also a play on words here that doesn't quite come through in English. In verse 6, the congregation stood Stephen and six others before the apostles for consideration as deacons. Here, the freedmen could not stand what Stephen is saying, so they stood up against him, but they could not withstand his wisdom or the Spirit of God with which he was speaking. So what do the freedmen do? Do they repent? Do they see themselves losing the argument? Say, ah, yeah, I get, you, you do have a point there, Stephen. I see. Do they yield to Stephen's superior knowledge and logic and wisdom? Do they submit to the Spirit of God in Stephen, so powerfully demonstrated by his signs and wonders? Wow, he is arguing so powerfully, and he's just been doing all these signs and wonders, too, that back up his logic and wisdom. No, they don't. None of it seems to work. Look at what they do in verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They had no answer for Stephen. They couldn't contradict him. So they fabricate evidence against him by secretly putting men up to it. They go out and either threaten or bribe men to spread a rumor and, in effect, plant verbal evidence on Stephen. Today, if that happened in a courtroom, we would call that suborning perjury. You're putting someone up to bearing false witness either by a threat or by a bribe. You're pressuring or incentivizing someone to give false testimony under oath, to perjure themselves on purpose. That's going to happen technically in verse 13. Here, though, it's more like a verbal version of a dirty cop planting drugs on an innocent man. They're fabricating evidence of a capital crime, no less, that Stephen did not commit. And what was that crime? We heard him speaking blasphemy. Blasphemy. Of course, that's really just hearsay. We heard him speaking. But because they can say we, it would stand up in court. But what then is blasphemy? Well, the best way to think of blasphemy is defamation of the divine. You are defaming divinity. That's blasphemy. You're insulting, slandering, 
denouncing either God or the things of God, the Word of God, speaking against Him, trying to persuade others not to respect God or His Word. And here it's blasphemy against Moses and God. Now, where are they getting such a charge of blasphemy against Moses from what Stephen is saying as he's preaching the gospel? Well, if you think about the gospel of salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the forgiveness of sins through Jesus' blood, there is no other name in heaven or on earth by which a man must be saved. That's what Stephen would have heard at church when Peter was preaching. An Orthodox Jew might hear that as removing the whole need for the sacrificial system in the first place. And remember where they're preaching that? On Solomon's portico, right outside the temple. Uh, that's awkward. <laughs> no more animal sacrifices. I mean, these Jews were connecting the dots. No more Day of Atonement. And it may have sounded like a license to sin. We heard him say, hey, you can't talk like that. You certainly can't talk like that in the temple. But the question is, did they really hear him say those things? Or did they only hear what they wanted it to hear? Was Stephen really speaking against Moses and against God? Was he really defaming them, slandering them? Or was Stephen doing something else with Moses and God? But these freedmen are not done with Stephen, not by a long shot. In verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes Latest 5.13, the church and the apostles, remember, had public opinion on their side. Remember, people may not have believed, but at least they respected the apostles and the church. And some people respected them so much they feared them and wouldn't dare join them. I don't know what's going on over there, but I'm not good enough to be over there. So I'm going to be over here. But I respect it. I just, I'm not sure I want to be a part of it. Because miraculous stuff was happening. And the church was growing. And remember back in chapter 4 how these same authorities had to re-arrest Peter and John after the prison break by the angel because if, if they went in with lights and sirens and handcuffs against them at that point, it would have incited a public riot in defense of the apostles. Here, though, they are able to turn the tide of public opinion by spreading rumors that incite the kind of riot that the authorities need so that now what they were unable to do to Peter and John, they're able to do to Stephen. They can jam them up on false charges because they've turned the tide of public opinion through the rumor, the hearsay, the false charge. They social engineer a change of public opinion so that they can make an example of Stephen, not in fear of a riot, but 
in response to a riot as if it were by popular demand. Man, that is cold. That's cold. So at last they've got what they need. So they're coming in hot. Lights and sirens, cuffs and cameras. The action is fast and furious now, verses 12 to 13. They came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this place, against the, this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. That word came upon him is another version of the word stand in Greek. They stood right in front of him and arrested him. They stood up to him. And so is the word for it. They set up false witnesses. They stood up false witnesses. They put them on the stand against Stephen. And their testimony is breathless, as if it deserves an immediate verdict right on the spot. It's almost like a seven-year-old telling on his brother. This man, it's as derogatory as it gets. I don't even care what his name is. This guy never ceases globalizing. It's exactly what every marriage counselor would tell you not to do in your arguments. Don't say, she always does this, he always does this. That's what they're doing. He never stops. Come on, man. The charge again is blasphemy, speaking against the temple and the law. And there's that phrase again, we have heard him say. Well, what did they hear him say? This Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Is that what Stephen said? Well, Sadly, we don't yet know what Stephen actually said. We'll have to wait till next week to sample Stephen's preaching. For now, we should note that Luke himself calls them false witnesses. False witnesses. And that's the evaluation Luke wants us working with at the moment. Stephen never said those things. This is false witness. And notice who it's against. It's against the same Stephen who was one of the seven in verse 3 who was of good repute. Literally, he had a good testimony. He himself was an attested man. It's the same root word here. Martyros, martyreo, witness, testimony, where we get our word martyr. Luke wants you to realize that they are bearing false testimony against a man who is himself attested among God's people. So well attested that he is one of the first deacons. And the irony of all this was pointed out to me by Craig Keener. He said they, they, they are the ones who are actually committing the blasphemy by giving false sworn testimony. I mean, they're saying, God's honest truth. Hand to God. We, sit, we heard him say it. Ah, who's committing blasphemy now? You had to commit blasphemy to accuse him of blasphemy. Are you kidding me? So they stand against Stephen, but they could not withstand him, so their only play is to put men on the stand against him. They prompt multiple men to spread a rumor and start a riot, and then they provoke multiple witnesses so that they can corroborate each other's false testimony and meet the standard of legal proof. Two or three witnesses. These guys know how to go after somebody and make them look guilty even though they're not. 
We, not just I, we heard it with our own ears. He spoke against Moses, against God, against the temple, against the law, against whatever you think is important about Judaism, he spoke against it. Just to cover all our bases. I mean, that's what you say in Judaism if you want to off someone on the up and up. Of course, the charge is unverifiable. Nobody was wearing a wire. Didn't have ring doorbells recording everything at your front door. It was just their word. But they could say we, so their testimony would stand up in court if everybody played ball. But again, Luke's narrative testimony is that this is false testimony against Stephen's testimony to God's truth. So twice, Stephen's opponents stand up against him to lie about what they have heard him say. But now in verse 15, over against what the witnesses say they heard, what do those sitting in judgment at the Sanhedrin see? And looking straight at him, those sitting in the council saw Stephen's face as the face of an angel. Ah, now who's testifying to Stephen? Uh, that's God. That's God. Making Stephen's face appear as the face of an angel. This is God's testimony to Stephen's testimony over against all the false testimony for all the Sanhedrin to see with their own eyes, right in the moment. Again, Luke's, Luke doesn't just say Stephen's face shined like an angel. He said the Sanhedrin saw his face like an angel. That's the language of testimony. To emphasize that now they, the judges themselves, are witnesses to the truth. They've now seen, no matter what anyone else has said, seeing Stephen's face like an angel associates Stephen with Moses again. Not only was he doing signs and wonders, now his face is appearing as an angel, just like Moses, whose face shone after he came out of the tabernacle in Exodus 34. In other words, this text is dripping with irony. Stephen is not just not against Moses. Stephen is actually just like Moses. He is a prophet with the same kind of authority and power and experience that Moses had. Signs and wonders, face like an angel, ringing a bell... Who's right? And that, of course, puts the Sanhedrin on the side of people like Korah in his rebellion against God's chosen messenger. God just raised the stakes. So will the Sanhedrin double down? Or will they finally fold? Tune in next week for another episode of Stephen and the Sanhedrin. For now, the point remains that the world cannot stand a church that stands for the gospel. The world cannot stand a church that stands for the gospel. And I mean that 
in a couple of senses. The church in Acts did stand for the gospel. That's what Stephen's doing. They stood up the deacons before the apostles who stood over them, stood them over the task of widow care. Stephen stood for the gospel and the unbelieving Jews could not stand that. So they stood against him, but they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which Stephen spoke. And so the opposition is reduced to standing up false witnesses against him while the Sanhedrin sits in judgment looking on. And the same is true today. The world stands against a gospel-preaching church. And yet, the world is not able to withstand the truth of the gospel as preached and obeyed by faithful churches. So what do they do? Name-calling, false testimony, violence. That's all they got left. The world will not stand for Christ-exalting preaching of the gospel from all of Scripture, but neither can the world stand against such preaching. The world cannot stand it, but they cannot withstand it either. They will not tolerate it, but they cannot succeed against the grace and power of the gospel. And so they resort to false witnesses, twisted words, cancel culture, and if all else fails, physical violence. But of course, all this begins to look pretty familiar, doesn't it? I mean, this is what the leaders did to Peter and John in the book of Acts. It is, in fact, what they did to Jesus. Well, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, first, we should expect the unbelieving world to treat the church like it treated Jesus and Peter and John and Stephen. The Sanhedrin treated Stephen just like they treated Jesus. Same manipulation of public opinion. They stir up the crowds just like they stirred them up against Jesus, even though Jesus had been popular with the crowds. They string Stephen up on the same charges and destroy the temple. Same method of using false witnesses, same eventual result, judicial murder. Now, does that mean Stephen was a bad evangelist or a bad preacher? Did Stephen not contextualize the content of his message to his culture quite enough? Was he not sufficiently seeker-sensitive? Or was the problem that he was not sufficiently winsome or persuasive or charismatic? Oh, Stephen was plenty charismatic. No, God simply made Stephen successful on God's metrics, not man's. Stephen's ministry is not a failure just because he saw different results than Peter saw in chapters 2 through 5. 
Do we want to see lots of conversions and meteoric growth in numbers? Yes, we do. <laughs> we confess it. We want to see that. We pray for it. We want people to be converted. We want unbelievers to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. We work towards that. We pray for it. We preach for it. We all want to see our unbelieving neighbors and co-workers and unbelieving family members come to faith immediately after our first gospel conversation with them. But even our brother Stephen did not see that. Stephen, notice, wins the argument and he loses the lawsuit. Now that may look like failure. But Stephen was faithful, and that is what counted. It's what counted to you when you read Acts 6 and 7. You don't think of Stephen as a failure. You think of Stephen as faithful. Good man, Stephen. Good man. No matter what. Good man. Faithful. So Christian, don't feel like a failure yourself. When your unbelieving friends and family reject the gospel from you or reject you because of the gospel, Stephen's faithfulness may have looked like a failure to the world. Then again, Stephen's faithfulness looks an awful lot like Jesus' faithfulness. Almost all the successful results of Jesus' ministry have happened after his death and because of his death. Remember what Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now listen, none of this means that we Christians are all entitled to self-pity with a martyr complex. Ooh. We're not allowed to feel sorry for ourselves. But it does mean that our evangelistic success is not measured by results. It's measured by faithfulness. The faithful evangelist is never a failure even if he or she never sees a single convert. God's word will succeed in the thing for which he sent it, even when the thing for which he sent it is not the thing for which we hope. We hope for immediate visible results. Maybe that's not the thing for which God sent his word from your mouth to your cousin, uncle, dad, mom, Daughter, son. But it will succeed. Second application. Crowds are fickle. So it is no use building a ministry philosophy around pleasing them. Look at how quickly the crowd turns on the church. The church had the respect of the crowds in chapter 5, 
but it takes nothing more than a rumor from powerful people to turn the tide of public opinion. Public opinion is fickle. It changes. That is why we cannot base a whole philosophy or methodology of ministry on what people want or don't want from a church. I want this kind of music. I want this kind of preaching. I like this kind of carpet. I like these kind of, I like chairs, not pews. I like this, not that. I like that, 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 that. Well, what are you going to like in three years? What are you going to like tomorrow? Fads come and go. That's why ministry fads also come and go. And that's why churches built on ministry fads come and go. To build a real, lasting local church, you have to build it not on what you think people want, but on what you know God wants, what God says He wants. Faithful, gospel preaching from the whole Bible that clarifies the truth and calls people to repent from their sins, to trust in Jesus, to love His truth and His people. Think about it this way. The crowds favored the church in chapter 5, but that didn't mean the early church was somehow trying to capitalize on that favor or angle for that favor to continue. Nor did they angle to recover it once public opinion shifted against them. Public opinion was immaterial to the early church. They just kept preaching the same gospel message. That's what Stephen did. Jews want signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but even when Stephen gave them both, look at what they did to him. Which leads us to our next application. Signs and wonders would be no more sufficient to produce belief today than they were in the early church. You realize this? Stephen, just like Peter, gets hauled into court for doing evangelism even though he's literally done miracles in front of everyone. The whole unbelieving crowd turned on him even though he did legit miracles. So it's hard to see how we should follow the charismatic logic of today that we should be seeking signs and wonders for greater evangelistic effectiveness. That doesn't add up biblically to what you see in the early church. That, that might produce a flash in the pan, but it's not going to sustain public opinion on the side of the church any longer than it did between Acts 5 and Acts 6. Jesus himself said, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Look, we could, we could have a resurrection program ministry where we go to Bluff City Cemetery and we say, Jimmy, come forth. 
and maybe that would work. And still, Jesus says, ah, I don't want you building a church that way. In fact, you're not going to build a church that way because they won't believe. They'll find another reason to stick with their sin and error because that's how committed they are to loving sin and their own assumptions. That's how dead they are in their own trespasses and sins. See, we could raise somebody from the dead right in front of them, but that doesn't mean that they themselves would be given new life and regeneration in order to repent and believe. The Exodus generation of Israelites themselves were ready to turn back to Egypt as soon as they got hungry and thirsty in the desert. And they're the ones who experienced the literal exodus in all the ten plagues. Seeing is not believing. The Sanhedrin saw Stephen's face become like an angel's face. Whatever that looked like, I don't know. But they saw it. And what are they getting ready to do to him? Didn't change their mind about him, did it? Because there is only one miracle that turns an unbelieving heart into a believing heart, and that is the miracle of regeneration, the new birth, and it is not dependent on seeing signs and wonders. Only the Spirit of God can make a dead heart alive and responsive to the Word of God and the Son of God. We should also be encouraged here that the qualification for effective evangelists is biblical wisdom and the Holy Spirit, not a seminary education or miraculous gifts. Stephen was full of grace and power, full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He was an effective evangelist here because he was faithful. His wisdom, his words, and the Holy Spirit within him left his opponents without a leg to stand on. Stephen did not have a Bible degree as far as we know. And if he did, Luke doesn't think the degree is what made Stephen effective. If Stephen himself was a Hellenized Jew from Alexandria, we don't hear about it. And Luke doesn't credit his education in Alexandria with being able to overcome and overpower logically and doctrinally the objections of those who are opposed to him. And besides, as a Hellenist, he probably did not even know Hebrew in order to study the Old Testament in its original language. He's a Hellenist. That's what it means. He speaks Greek, not Hebrew. Yet here he is, leaving Alexandrian freemen speechless, simply because he's full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Not because he has a degree. Not even because he worked wonders. Christian, that can be you. You can be full of grace and power, minus the signs and wonders. You can be full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Let that encourage you as an evangelist. Become strong in the Scriptures. Read the Bible day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out. 
come to church every time the doors are open to hear God's word and learn from God's people. Pray for the Holy Spirit to fill you and use you. Obey, love, believe, and speak the gospel and leave the results to God. That's it. We should also notice here that ideological unbelief is impervious to either evidence or logic. Ideological unbelief is impervious to either evidence or logic. What I mean by that is, if you're an unbeliever, usually your unbelief is rooted in an ideology to which you are more committed than the gospel. You just want to believe something else. It's not that you don't believe anything. It's that you believe something else that you think contradicts or overpowers the gospel and the biblical worldview. But that kind of unbelief doesn't respond to evidence or logic because it's too committed to the ideology. The Jews were too committed to their own received and deformed theology of the temple to believe anything else about God or themselves, no matter how much evidence or wisdom Stephen gave them, impervious to evidence or logic. I know what he did. I know what he said. I know I can't refute what he said. And I know I, know I can't not believe in what he did. But I ain't believing it. Because ideology, temple, people, law, Moses, that's why. Well, but you realize the same is true today of those who, whose ideology is Darwinian or humanistic. When it comes out on a street level, you do you. The gospel itself strikes at the heart of every idolatrous ideology. It says Jesus is Lord, not the self in either its morality or sexuality, not the state or its surrogates, not humanity or its potential, not nature in all its majesty and beauty. But unbelief is always driven by a competing Usually intuitive, I'll just make sense, self-centered, self-serving, and sometimes even self-pitying ideology. That's why people don't believe. Because what they already believe serves them best to excuse their sins and comfort them. Stephen did signs and wonders. He spoke with incontrovertible wisdom. His face shone like an angel, and still unbelievers persisted in their unbelief. I mean, these people could not ask Stephen to give them more. Why don't you just prove it to me, Stephen? Uh, I kind of already did, bro. And you're not believing it, so I don't know what else to do for you. Signs and wonders. You can't respond to any of my arguments. My face is shining like an angel. What... And you're saying it's my fault that you don't believe. Absence of evidence and argumentation is not the problem for ideological unbelief. Unbeliever, you have all the evidence and argumentation you need in the Bible, 
that God has given you. Read it. Read it. The problem is not that the sun is not shining. The problem is that you have shut your eyes in order to stay committed to something else in your mind, and so you are blinding yourself to the truth because the light exposes what you don't want to see about yourself and God and the world. You reject Christianity not because you or science or modernity have refuted Christianity any more than Stephen's opponents had refuted it. It's because you're more committed to a self-serving ideology than you realize. You are not as objective as you think. The human heart defends its sin and self-reliance to the hilt. And so it chooses the worldview that best protects its own perceived self-interest, whether that's self-pity or self-promotion or self-indulgence. You either choose the worldview that helps you keep on licking your wounds, or helps you keep on worshiping yourself, or worshiping your desires and gratifying them. And see, the Bible doesn't let you do that, does it? The Bible isn't interested in protecting your self-pity, or your self-promotion, or your self-indulgence. It, it confronts those things in you. So, be careful that when you hear the gospel, you don't just hear what you want to hear. According to Luke, Stephen spoke with wisdom in the Spirit, so much so that those who stood against him couldn't hold a candle to his light. But what did they hear? They don't hear wisdom in the Spirit, do they? They don't hear that. They hear blasphemy against Moses and the law. Twice, once in verse 11, once in verse 14, people say, We heard him saying. Ah, so confident. So agreed together and so wrong. Did you really hear him say that? Or are you just convincing yourself that that's what he said? Because you need him to have said that in order to have something in him to refute. Stephen is attested among God's people, but falsely accused by those whose unbelief itself is driven by their own false ideology of temple and law. When you evaluate truth by a false ideology, you become a false witness against the truth. You can't measure it like that. Look at how confident and wrong the Jews are here. They're the majority culture in Jerusalem. They're the ones with all the clout. They're the scholarly ones who know what the Bible says and doesn't say. They're the smart ones. They're on the right side of history in their own minds. They're on the right side of logic in their own minds. God would never do what you're saying, Stephen. We know God better than that. He's more faithful than what you're saying. Shame on you. You're the one who should die. You're the one misrepresenting God. And therefore they feel they can twist 
Stephen's words any way they want, as long as it shuts them up, because it is ideology in service of self-concept that is inviolable for these Jews. We're God's people. We're God's people. God loves us. God loves us this way. And he will never stop. And you're wrong about him and about us. And we don't like the implications of what you're saying. So why don't you go meet him before we do? All based on a wrong hearing of what Stephen was saying. Notice, too, the tactic of false witness is often not to contradict or disprove true witness, but to twist it. They're twisting Stephen's words. They had to know they were wrong. They did know that they were wrong. They were false witnesses. Stephen bested them in public debate in verse 10. Doesn't matter. They'll just say that Stephen was saying something he didn't say. They'll twist his words to mean something he didn't mean. Well, now, that's not exactly fighting fair, is it? that's what blind unbelief does. We heard him saying, oh, is that right? Is that what you heard? Not according to Luke, you didn't. Luke calls that false witness. They're putting words in Stephen's mouth, twisting the meaning of the words that Stephen did say. Stephen's not speaking against Moses. His face is shining like Moses. Again, true gospel witness is often going to be opposed by false witness, even today. It's the first of many times in Acts that true gospel witness is going to be opposed by false witnesses. It's thematic in Acts. The risen Christ had told the disciples in chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses. And Stephen's own character and testimony was witnessed by the congregation, and yet when he takes a stand for gospel truth, the world puts false witnesses on the stand to stand against him. And yet when he does that, and when it happens to us, we shouldn't be surprised. When we plant the seed of the gospel, only to see Satan snatch it away from the hearts of those who heard it from us through the instrumentality of false witnesses. We should not be surprised when public opinion turns against us. We should be careful that what they are opposing in us is the gospel itself, not our own greed or immorality. But if the world has, has to twist our words and bear false witness against us, then even though that disappoints us, it should not surprise us or discourage us. That's how it is how it's always been. Friend, if you're an unbeliever or a skeptic this morning, we're glad you're here. Let me appeal to you for just a minute. If something happened in history, what we have to deal with is testimony. Because we weren't alive to see it. Yes, archaeology confirms the Bible's claim to historicity. But events like Jesus' resurrection, apostolic miracles, are necessarily confirmed by human testimony and documentary evidence like the books of the Bible. 
Of course, there's always the empty tomb, but what we are left to evaluate is the human testimony to the empty tomb, the apostolic witness documented in Scripture. Even in a courtroom, what you have to go on is testimony. Does testimony corroborate evidence? Does testimony have explanatory power for illuminating what actually happened? Whose word should you believe and why? And the standard of proof is never absolute certainty, not even in a courtroom. The standard of proof is that a jury should be left beyond all reasonable doubt. Reasonable doubt. And here Luke, as a historian, gives his own character witness to Stephen. This man was attested by thousands in the early church, had nothing to gain and everything to lose in testifying to Jesus as he did. There's no corruption, no ulterior motive, no self-enrichment here. That belonged to Judas. Judas is the one who denied Jesus, not the one who testified to him. It's the false witness against Stephen who were corrupt, not Stephen himself. They're the ones putting up the false witnesses, not Stephen. Stephen is the one telling the truth. Stephen is the one speaking truth to power. Stephen is the one risking his neck. Why would he do that? Unless what he's saying about Jesus is actually true. Finally, God's word overcomes those who oppose it either for judgment or confusion or salvation. The text in verse 10 says they were not strong enough to oppose. They didn't have the skill, the competence, the ability. They didn't have the chops to hang with Stephen and the wisdom and the spirit that Stephen had from God. They're playing JV logic to Stephen's varsity wisdom. Wisdom. Not just logic. Wisdom. The way Stephen was using and applying the word of God, the way he was doing battle with the word, was no match for them. Not that they submitted their reason to Stephen's wisdom. They didn't. They didn't. They still disagreed with him. But in order to disagree with him, they had to harden their own hearts, twist his words, and bear false witness against Stephen's true witness. Unbeliever, do not let that be you. You will be held accountable for that. Repent now. Submit your reason to God's revelation today. Stop twisting God's word. Stop putting words in his mouth and take him at his word today. That's what's best for us. God really is the one who created the world and all there is in it. He is our holy creator. He is our righteous judge. He did create us in his image to reflect his holiness, his righteousness, and his love. There's no view of humanity more dignified than that. You are created in the image of one who is infinitely above you. And he did it out of love 
He created us to serve and enjoy him forever under the safety of his rule, the generosity of his blessing, the goodness of his authority. Yet it's also true that we sinned. We rebelled against his law and his love to become our own gods in our own minds. And that drew down God's righteous wrath, which even now is filling hell with the screams of unrepentant sinners who are finding it's too late to repent. But God also sent His Son, Christ Jesus, to live the obedient life we should have lived, to die the death we deserve to die in our place for our sins. And if we turn from our sin and our moral and intellectual self-reliance to trust in Jesus, then we can be reconciled to the God that we have so deeply offended. God will count Jesus' righteousness for ours and His death for ours. This is urgent. You're not guaranteed another day to decide whether or not you're going to repent. Even another hour is costly. You will suffer false accusations like Stephen did if you decide to believe these things, but it will be worth it in the end because Jesus awaits you in heaven when you die and He will say to you, good and faithful servant. And you will inherit the new creation in a glorified body along with all Christ's trusting people when He returns to make all things new, no matter what unbelievers did to your old body because of your loyalty to Jesus and His Word. But you cannot simply sit back in condescending judgment of the Bible and the apostles who wrote it. That's what the Sanhedrin was doing. Sitting there in judgment on Stephen while others took the stand to bear false witness even though Stephen was commissioned by the apostles and the apostles were commissioned by Jesus himself. But that is the posture of modern unbelief. It sits as if presiding over what it perceives as the judicial demise of the Bible and those who trust in it. Friend, be very careful how you treat Scripture. Was it written by men? Yes, of course it was. Because if the story was that it fell directly from heaven, you would have even less patience with that. Was it written by men commissioned directly by the risen Jesus Christ himself? Yes, it was. And that means to reject Scripture is not simply to reject biased and fallible men, but to reject the Christ who commissioned those men to write it and to reject the Spirit of Christ who was protecting them from error when they wrote it. You cannot love Jesus and reject the Bible. The whole book of Acts begins with the risen Christ commissioning the apostles as his own witnesses to the ends of the earth. You love Jesus, you love the apostles he commissioned, and you love the word he commissioned them to preach and record in Scripture. And that word, that testimony of the apostles and Stephen has reached your ears this morning. To reject it, you have to bear false witness against them. And that is to perjure yourself in God's courtroom. Don't let that be you. You have heard the testimony. What are you going to do with it? Let's pray together.
And Lord Christ, your truth is forever sure. It is forever settled in the heavens. And yet we confess that we have often forgotten ourselves, even as those who call ourselves by Christ's name. We ourselves sometimes want to suppress that truth and unrighteousness. So forgive us for what remains of our own rebelliousness to your law, to our own remaining tendencies to twist your words to mean something they don't mean in order to excuse sins that you never intended to permit in us. And Lord, we pray, would you make our testimony as a church to your truth faithful and fruitful. We want unbelievers to hear your word and to be saved. Oh, Father, even if they hear your word and are not saved, make us faithful. Help us not to live for the applause of public opinion, but for your pleasure and for the clarification of your truth in this world for its spread to all the earth. For Jesus' sake, amen.